0: for the Peterson Automotive Museum this is car stories my name is AJ today we are out in La Cunyana visiting Mr. Cobra himself Lynn Park Lynn thank you so much for having me over well thanks for giving me the opportunity to be here uh you are someone who's been on my radar for a couple years now when I first started working with the museum uh I'm saw you bring a a couple Cobras out to a cruise in and I did my homework on you because it was actually rare for me to see a real Cobra. You know, I've grown up seeing so many kit cars in my life. I was really impressed seeing a real one. And then I found out this man has several over 10 and uh, I found that interesting and I wanted to sort of get your story and see what got you into Cobras. And we'll start off with what uh, was your earliest automotive memory?
1: Well, my earliest automotive memory was probably when I was uh, a teenager and working in a gas station, just taking apart cars, fixing cars, uh, working on my mom's 56 Ford, and, and just generally playing with cars. And as soon as I got my driver's license, I took my uh, mom's 56 Ford and put a great big Edsel motor in it, and I had my first hot rod.
0: What did she say about you taking the motor out and putting in a bigger motor in her car?
1: She said, you better not leave me stranded. Did you? Was it
0: a good car? (laughs) That was
1: a good car. It it ran well. And did you grow up here locally? I I grew up in the valley. I was in Northridge, and uh, I I was born in downtown Los Angeles, moved to San Fernando Valley when I was 10, and lived there until 1963.
0: When was the first time, because it sounded like you were into cars pretty early, but when did you first learn about the AC Cobra?
1: 1962, I was a Ford Hot Rodder with my... Edsel powered 56 Ford. My sister's boyfriend was a sports car guy. He had a little Lotus Elite, and we always talked back and forth about which one was the best, you know, handling and cute or brute power. And all of a sudden, one day he came home from school and he plopped down this issue of Road and Track magazine that had a Cobra on the cover and he said, Look at this. Here we are, a sports car with a Ford motor. And I got to tell you, I was at Shelby American the next week down in Venice and that, that from that point on i've just been hooked on cobras it's kind of uh kind of neat he was a sports car guy you
0: were a brute horsepower guy and this this ac cobra seems like best of both worlds for something you both who might you know the lotus salon guy and the big edsel big block guy wouldn't agree on this is the one car you guys would agree on
1: we saw that and said this is heaven i mean it had it all and it was at the time i was going to ucla so i was very close to venice and I just started going down there. They they thought I worked there. I was there so much. But Shelby thought I was going to buy a Cobra. I had a '62 Ford at the time that I had rebuilt from a junkyard wreck. It had been stripped, and I put it back together. So they thought I was going to buy a Cobra. And they treated me well. And my gosh, it was just it was heaven. I couldn't afford a Cobra at the time, so I took an AC like they did, basically, and, and put my own Ford motor in it. You and, did that
0: on your own after yes. Shelby.
1: Yeah, when I when I was down there and saw all this, I said I've got to do this. So I just did it myself, and drag raced it until I went in the army in 1967. Was it
0: as easy as just putting a 289 motor in a in a light car, or was there more modifications that needed to happen?
1: Well, at the time, it seems very easy. We just put this big motor in, and well, you start breaking all the things that Shelby broke. You know you brake axles and you break stub axles and you break this and that the other thing but before long you go through the same learning curve that they went through and you've got a pretty dependable car
0: and you said you drove down the next day to venice so was this early on were they early into production was shelby did you did you really know a lot about shelby before
1: this never heard his name
0: really And it, and what was your first impression was he there when you drove down there
1: he was there. I mean, keep in mind, this is in the early days. He was there all the time, friendly, outgoing. But again, he, he's a car salesman at this point. He had, he had a
0: business it, to promote.
1: Exactly. He thought I was going to buy a car, and it was great. I mean, they, they treated me very nicely.
0: What happened when you found out you didn't have the money for a car? Were, were they just as nice? Did they you get to hang out with the crew?
1: They, they were always very nice, because by this time, I had struck up a, a good friendship with this friend of mine who worked there. and um I was there seeing him and they would paint the cars that got damaged in transit over here and and he had done the same thing and put a Ford motor in his AC. So it was a natural hookup with him and he painted race cars when they came back from getting damaged. He did all their uh, their advertising work. F- Ford had a contract with Shelby to do prepare cars for Ford's advertising. And he did all of that work. So I was I was just a fixture down at Shelby American.
0: How did your relationship with Carroll Shelby over the years evolve? Because you went from, I guess, this young and eager uh, lover of his cars to, in his lifetime still, sort of the the collector and the historian of Shelby. He watched that, and you were with him for that evolution over all those years.
1: I was, and what made it even more fun is during kind of the interim in there in the 80s and 90s, I sold him wheels for his... Cobras that he was making and that we would call replicas, but he bought wheels that I made during that time as well. So it it was a natural progression in the mid seventies. We had the third annual Cobra convention for the sack club right here in Los Angeles. And i ran that. So he and I talked a lot and became pretty good friends again, right then. And then just have never lost contact with him. And we just were very good friends right up to the time he died.
0: What's one thing people might not know about Carol, because what I always found you know i I kind of grew up in the Carol Shelby world of it was a a trim level on a mustang uh you'd get from the dealership, and then you would see Carol Shelby and he was sort of everyone would say the the promoter the you know he was a businessman a salesman and and then you it almost overshadows the fact that oh he was actually a very good engineer and a even better race car driver, so what is something people might not know about the personal side of Carol Shelby
1: well. Yeah, he was an incredible driver. One day we were testing replicas and real ones out at Riverside Raceway, and my gosh, Carol got no helmet, or anything, just got into one of the, and I forget what kind it even was, and drove it around Riverside so fast that everybody was impressed. But but that was the the exterior Carol Shelby. What I appreciated most about him is he'd be say it in the pits or, or my pit at, in particular at Monterey, and he'd be signing autographs, and if someone were to show up. Uh, on crutches or obviously had a problem with, with some sort of disease or something. Shelby would stop that line and just talk to that person, giving him his undivided attention and and forget everybody else. He had this soft side that most people never got to see.
0: Really? That, that's very, and that's one thing I think a lot of people probably don't know about him.
1: No, he, he on, on the uh, outside had to be, you know, Mr. Businessman, Mr. Yeah. Race Car driver, tough guy, um, a Texan, but, but inside my gosh he was just a a soft hearted person well as evidenced by his shelby heart fund Mm -hmm. but but there was a girl that worked at one of the restoration shops that that carol was having work done, and and she'd had a pre-existing condition and and couldn't get health insurance and had to have a fairly expensive um, operation done and shelby just said that's no problem i'll pay for it do you think that came from his own heart condition no, this was even before his, He well, he knew he had a heart condition, obviously, from 63. Yeah. But no, I don't know. It just, he had a soft side that uh, he didn't show very often, but it was certainly fun to see.
0: And, but he, as he saw this young car guy uh, in need of a AC Cobra, he still had to wait uh, until you can afford one to buy one.
1: Yeah, he. I tried to talk him into giving me one, and he wasn't about. He's to not do that it.
0: generous. No. So when when was because now we're we're surrounded in cobras where we're sitting. Um, what was the first time? When was the first time you bought a cobra?
1: Well, I got out of the service in late 1969 and said, okay, now I'm going to find a cobra. And even 1969, they were still selling for you know four to five thousand dollars. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So I found a car that had been wrecked, not badly, but the front end was pushed in on it. And I was able to buy it for $2,100, which, which I had to borrow. I mean, tw- that's still a lot of money for a kid just out of the service.
0: And, and just to, to sort of put it in today's terms, that would be like a kid today borrowing 15 grand, 20 grand to go buy a smashed car, a damaged car.
1: Yeah, exactly. This is not a, a car that you're going to get in and drive every day or even at this point ever because it's it's all apart. Yeah. So I, I bought the car and, and found someone that wanted to buy the removable hardtop from it for 500 So for $1,600 out of pocket, I had a Cobra. Now, this is still 1969. It took a long time to get that car working. Where do you go buy new front fenders? Well, you have to go to AC cars in England, and that doesn't happen overnight. So it, it took a long time to get the car working. And then by this time, I, I kind of found another car or two that were wrecked, nineteen late 60s, early 70s people were wrecking a lot of Cobras
0: was the the I mean you must have had so many years of wanting and lusting after a Cobra and wanting to drive one and thinking what what's going to be like did it hold up once you got behind the wheel
1: even more I I mean my my own AC with the Ford was a lot of fun and it was great but I I kind of turned it into a race car it was it was fast It really was. And so it became a car that was a little rougher to drive on the street. So when I got my first car, I resisted, first real Cobra, I resisted the temptation to put a bigger motor in it. And I drove it just the way it was. And it was such a dream. I said, okay, now I've got to do this again. And if if one is good, two is going to be better, and three is going to be better than that. But because I never really had the money to go buy a perfect finished car, most of the first ones I bought were in need of some repair.
0: And when did it sort of go from you just being this Cobra lover to this collector and and the sort of all-knower of all things Cobra? Because I imagine people turn to you and go, hey, is this right? I'm doing a restoration. Is this where this goes? What you know? What kind of layout is here?
1: Well, it just kind of progressed. As I worked on them more and more, you just happen to learn more and more about the cars. And, and I really enjoyed working on them. Um, to this day, I enjoy working on them as much as I do anything. Uh, we have a lot of fun racing them, but probably um, early 80s into the 90s, and it was just my full-time passion. I mean, I had a regular job that I had to do, but on weekends, between soccer games and that sort of thing, we just worked on the Cobras all the time, and the more you work on them, the more you learn. What did you look for? Because
0: what I love about the Cobra is one car can be so different. There, you know, There's drag cars, there's semi-competition cars, there's uh, 427s, 289s. What what type of Cobra are you sort of more attracted to? And then what are some of the the notable Cobras you've had over the years?
1: Well, it's kind of fun because the first 200 cars, really, each one is almost like a prototype because they are very different from one another. I mean, little differences. You're not going to find giant differences. But they went from Smith's gauges to Stuart Warner gauges. They went from Lucas generators to Ford generators to Ford alternators. And then they went to Stuart Warner gauges. They went from worm and sector steering to rack and pinion steering. They went from skinny wheels to a little wider wheels, and they changed the body shape, and they added side vents, and and all of these things. Less just,
0: and less British, more and more American. Exactly. As it would go.
1: They just kept the cars changing as they went along, and you kind of had to keep up with that, because the the guy that would buy a, a worm and sector Cobra, not knowing there was a difference, would kind of look around and say, well mine isn't like this and mine's different and it's kind of fun to just make notes and thank goodness we've got guys in the the cobra community in in the shelby american club that saw these changes and made notes of them and really made it a passion for them to keep track of cars by serial number and what changes were made and if you start looking at those sorts of things you think oh my gosh um,
0: there's a lot of rarity out there. I mean, there's a lot of one-offs, and
1: there are some oddball cars that you start looking that they just came at the end of one change, right before another change, and it's it's kind of fun to look at what they're not. the four twenty sevens kind of were in in three let's say four groups. There were the SC and comp cars, and then they went to the thirty one hundred series cars that had the square tail lights, little bigger fenders in the front a little more mud flap effect. Then by 3,200, they went to the round taillights. They kept the oil cooler scoop, diminished the front fender flares just a little bit. And by 3,300, they were back to, to 427 engines. All the 3,200 cars used 428 engines. The taillights stayed with round. They dropped the oil cooler scoop on the last 100 cars. And and if you don't know that, you'll be looking at a car and saying, well, wait a minute. This must have been hitting the front end because there's no oil cooler scoop. Well, the last sixty three cars or whatever they were, sixty cars, didn't have an oil cooler scoop in the front. So you you just learn these by looking at them, working on them, talking about them and um and having a good memory always helps. This
0: might be kind of a, a dumb question when I think of it, but it just dawned on me. With the four twenty sevens and the bigger stuff and the more heavier duty stuff, sort of later on once he got it figured out, was there a time that that shelby stopped using anything original ac i mean was it at some point he's just making his own chassis and making his own bodies or was there always an ac platform he would start with
1: well the cars always came from ac cars okay when they arrived here they were a, a rolling chassis with with girling brakes and suspension springs seats upholstery gauges so basically the the whole run of the cobras Shelby was just b- really putting in an engine and transmission
0: so even even the big stuff towards the end, it was still always starting with that AC rolling chassis. yes um, what have been some of your favorite cobras over the years that you have owned, and how many have you had over the years
1: well i I've, I've lost track and I could probably resurrect that, but I. it's probably better just not yeah, to think about it I haven't really thought about it yeah. but the second cobra I ever bought was csX 2010, the tenth cobra built. And and that was fun because at the time, it's just another car. But then you realize, what well, this is a 10th Cobra built. This is pretty early. And that, to this day, is one of my favorites. I still have it. We race it. It was um, invited to be shown at Pebble Beach. It won the first Best Ford Award that they gave at the Monterey Historic Races. And it's just kind of an interesting car. But if I had done to it today what I did 40 years ago to it, people would have said, oh, Lynn, you can't do that because I wanted it real daytona coupe which obviously i couldn't afford so we made this into a daytona roadster and you've probably seen it it's number 97 it's got side pipes carved into the body along the side and it's got little scoops for cold air on top of the fenders like a daytona coupe would have so it's it's a very different car
0: and these are all modifications you did to it correct what i I love is you brought a a 289 to our last cruise and that i lovingly refer to as a beater um, I mean, it's an all-there straight car, but it's a dirty car. It's a worn car. And you brought up the fact that you didn't want it originally because it was in such need of, you know, in such poor condition.
1: Yeah, that was before the barn find frenzy was in. And at that point, 20-some years ago, yeah, it was it was a beater, and that's being kind to it. Uh, my friend who helped me with that uh, calls it Dirtbag, and that's kind of become its name. But I was had full plans of restoring it. And then all of a sudden, Carol Shelby saw it and he said, you know what, man, I'd, I'd kind of leave that thing alone. Look at the people that are looking it, at it. When there's, you know, 40 shiny ones lined up and there's one dirt bag, they, they go over to look at dirt bag. But it has kind of become the standard, the benchmark to which other people always refer when they're restoring a car. They want to come over and see what color this wire is or this bolt head. Just before you got here today, there was a guy from New York photographing the heads of the bolts that's used on the steering column and some of the suspension because he wants to make his restoration correct.
0: Because it's that original. It's
1: so original. Um, I'm only the second owner, and the first owner only drove it for a few years until he parked it. He doesn't remember what went wrong. Hmm. But he parked it under a blue tarp in his backyard. I mean, this was not a babied car. Do you remember what went wrong? Because you had to fix it to get it running. Well, you know, when you get one that doesn't work, doesn't run for a lot of reasons by this point. Yeah. I I wasn't sure what... I know the motor was fine. It wasn't anything to do with the engine not running. But uh, it could have been a carburetion problem because I had to rebuild the carburetor, put a fuel pump on it, put a water pump on it. So it could have been any one of a number of things.
0: What... um When did you start to take the turn and you start to realize these aren't just used sports cars and these are now becoming sought after classic cars and the price is rising and they're collector's items?
1: Well, I I still don't like to think that way. I I like to think that I own them because they're fun and and the money is very secondary. I buy them because I enjoy working on them, racing them. My two sons race with me and, and we own and drive these cars because we love them. Not because they're a status symbol or because they're worth a lot of money down the road, I still like to think of myself as just an enthusiast that happened to find a hobby that can actually make a little money on instead of losing money. There's
0: got to be there's got to be a handful of people in your life that you want to you want to take you know the Barrett Jackson catalog or you know the the Gooding catalog and go told you so see this this dumb hobby kind of paid off.
1: Yeah, some of my neighbors that would see me bring a wreck home, and they would say, oh my gosh, Lynn, what are you going to do with that? That's almost another eyesore for the neighborhood. And at that time, I, I, the money, again, didn't come into it. I just said, no, you'll be surprised what a nice car I'll make out of this. And sure enough, it turned out to be a nice car. And I don't think a lot of the, my friends and neighbors have ever realized what those cars are really worth. No.
0: And it, it, they, what I think I kind of like about them is, you see a Ferrari and you know that's expensive. You don't have to be a car person to know that is a expensive exotic car. And and a Mercedes, you know, an old Mercedes looks very stately and looks looks very expensive. I I don't think you know that in a Cobra. And in fact, I would say the real Cobras are probably are probably a little bit harder off because you have to tell people, no, this is real. This isn't. People probably. You know, they they might overhype a Ferrari, but they probably underhype a Cobra and think,
1: oh, it's just another kit car. Absolutely. One of my favorite stories about Ferraris and Cobras is in the fall of every year, we go on this uh, Cobra 1000 mile tour called the Cobra 1000. And it's for all original Cobras. And there's 15 or 18 of us that go, all couples. And one of the fellows that was on this trip with us a few years back had just sold a Ferrari. And he was driving to Cobra, and we were at a gas stop. And he said, oh, my gosh, this is great. People are just waving at me. And I said, what would you expect? And he said, well, when I was driving a Ferrari, they were flipping me off.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I love Ferraris too, but I don't find that story – I don't find that hard to believe at all. Uh, I heard someone say about the Mustang once that where it's it, – you know, you compare the Mustang to the Corvette, and the Corvette will always outperform the Mustang. But where the Mustang wins is everyone likes you in a Mustang. There's no negative connotation in a Mustang.
1: That That is so true. Um, Mustangs, they're an American car. Cobras are an American car. Uh, the, the closest thing I can relate it to is, is driving a 32 Ford hot rod around. Yeah. Everybody loves your 32 Ford hot rod. They have no idea what it costs. It doesn't matter. It's, it's an old car, and they kind of recognize it as such. And with the Cobras, that way, people that don't have a clue as to what it costs, they just love it. The fact that you're out there driving it, it it just makes sense to them. So in,
0: in your collection and the many different variants, the, the 427s, the 428s, the 260s, the 289s, the drag cars, do you have, personally have a, for a, a Sunday drive or or just to work on, to drive to enjoy, a personal favorite configuration or setup?
1: Well, I think it depends on where you're going. If you're going on a short drive, you take a 427 because it's it's a little more brutish, a little noisier. But the extra power is sure a lot of fun. You, you put it in fourth gear and you just drive it. If you're going to take one of our thousand mile trips, a 289 is a little bit easier because it doesn't have the tendency to want to overheat. Um, it's not as noisy. It's just an easier car to take care of for a thousand miles.
0: And is there a um, is there a car? Are you are you sort of there as your collection? Round it out, or is it always evolving? Are you? Is there? Do you ever have your eye on another Cobra? Is there something else you ever want to get out there?
1: Oh, right now there isn't. But you know, somebody comes up with a car that they want to sell that might be better than one you have, and you say, "Oh, that's that's a natural. I'll just do that." But I'll have to say, I haven't bought a car in in quite a while. I like the ones that I have. The garage is full, and that always kind of dictates your decision as well. At all, rich or
0: poor. With cars, I think the biggest issue with car guys or, or car people and enthusiasts, it's never money, and and even for poor people, it's not money or people who who can't afford very expensive cars. It's always space. It is it, you can get as wealthy and have as many cars as you want. I think you're always going to run into space.
1: Space is the big problem. I I used to have a shop over in in La Crescenta, in which I kept a lot of cars and. The fellow that owned it said, Lynn, I'm going to sell this in a few months. And I said, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? And I also ran a business out of that building. My wife said, let's just move the cars home. Let's build a bigger garage. And so we did. And now I've got my garage at home, and that is, it's a finite size. It's not going to get any bigger. But I've always got a little cushion. I, I offer storage space to a few of my friends uh, for which I don't charge them. I just keep the cars. But I always have that cushion. Okay, if there's a car I really want, one of those guys is going to get to move out.
0: That's a, that's a very smart idea. You give yourself the the illusion of I can't have another car because there's too much. There's not enough space. So you're not seeing the empty hole. Gun. I got to fill that slot with something. But at the same time, you do know when the good car comes around, you don't have to get rid of one to get another one, or you don't have to, you know, put on another wing of a of a garage. You know, if people are coming to you for the restorations, and I'm sure you get nonstop calls about advice on buying a car. Is there something for someone who's looking to either restore or buy an original Cobra? Are there signs to look for, um, things to avoid, um, You know, typical just buyer's advice?
1: The, the first thing I tell people is to avoid your own greed. Something that, that looks too good to be true usually is. Uh, we've got a book that tells you by serial number what's happened to each car in its whole lifetime. Um granted it's it's not perfect, but it certainly gives you a an insight when you go to look at a car. Okay, has it been rebodied, has it been wrecked, has it been stolen, has it been missing? Um has it been repainted? It tells you what color the car was originally. And these are the kinds of things that you really need to know going in. And you should check with someone like myself and just have them go with you or, or ask questions on the phone about little things you see on the car. There's always a tendency to not want to share your find with someone for fear. They will try to steal your find from you. But I think that the Cobras, the group that helps you buy a Cobra, is pretty honest and that just isn't going to happen. But it, you just have to be aware of the guy that's trying to sell you something that isn't what it appears to be.
0: Uh, that's great advice. And I'm sure, you know, as these cars keep climbing and climbing, there's going to be more people uh, who sort of want to take advantage of that. And uh, for the unsuspecting customer, that could very easily happen. Uh, lastly, you talked a little bit about the replicas. Do you have an opinion on replicas? Do original Cobra owners, do they like them because, hey, it's more people can enjoy these cars? Or is it sort of a, that's nah, not a real Cobra.
1: Well, that's kind of fun because when replicas started, and I mean, my gosh, they, they started in the well, early to mid 80s. Uh, ERA and Contemporary were building cars. And the the original Cobra owners didn't think a lot about it one way or the other. Yeah, I've got a real one, and that guy's only got a a replica. But as they grew in stature and in popularity, you kind of have to embrace them and say, well, yeah, this one is really a good one. That isn't quite so good. Um, There's a lot of guys that can't afford a million-dollar real Cobra. And what is it they say? Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery or something. And... I've got a couple of replicas. I enjoy the heck out of. Now, I've done a very good job on them. You'd have a very hard time telling that they weren't real. As a matter of fact, you you can't tell they aren't real. And I enjoy driving them a lot. And where they're really nice is if you've got a friend and you want to go somewhere, you can let him drive the replica without worrying about it too much.
0: Yeah, it is great advice. And at the end of the day, you know, everybody's still getting to enjoy a car and enjoy
1: driving. Exactly. I just don't. I don't think this. Uh, status symbol of having a real cobra is a big deal when you when some of the replicas are beautifully done uh, and their owners are just as proud of their car as anybody is and um they say i've got replicas myself and, and i just enjoy them a lot
0: well that's great to hear lynn thank you so much for letting me come out and talk to you
1: i'm glad you came